The guy I was thinking of was Jesse Plemons, by the way, who's married to Kirsten Dunst. Jesse Clemens. Jesse Clemens. Clemens, not Clemens. Anyway, I've given you permission to record. I guess I will fucking record then. God, go. Bow Bridges and a bunch of stuff. Bridges. Oh, he's that guy. Yeah, as I say, I've shown a picture of him. You look at him and go, oh. He looks more like Jeff Bridges' dad. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think he's old, older uh... by quite a bit. <laughs> oh, he plays a dad in something else that I've seen. Yeah, he's been like a dad in a few things, I think. Yeah, he's a dad in something I've watched quite a lot, but I can't think what. Uh, I'm going to quickly IMDB, bro, which is... We're getting, we're getting off track, but... He's in Charles Webb. Mm. Yeah, he was in... I'm sure it was X-Files he was in that we watched. Yeah, he'll have been... He's been in loads of cop stuff as well, like... Because yeah, they've got the, the, the he's bridges. In Max the bridges have got that commanding voice. He's in My Name Is Earl. That's Carl Hickey. He's the dad in My Name Is Earl. Is there anything on that list that I would watch? Uh, he's in Stargate. He's in The Ballad of Jack and Rose. Nope, nope. Will and Grace. Yeah, that's where I know him from. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I love that we were just not getting off of Jeff Bridges. It's got to wear Jeff Bridges a little Sorry, bit. Sorry, I've gone down with Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Oh, I mean, Jeff Bridges <laughs> would make a great Captain Hook, right? Jeff Bridges. Yeah, he's like, got that, like, pirate vibe, bit roguey. Yeah, bit roguey, I... bit rough around the edges, but still can pull off quite, like, a camp hook, which we know we all prefer. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, feel like we can go. I don't know if I prefer that. No? I don't know. Yeah, I probably do, like swashbuckling style. If it was a bit too gritty, it'd be you need you need yeah. melodrama. And you Ray, like, I was Ray definitely Stevens. scared of pirates up until a very long well, I'm still scared of pirates, so Ray Stevenson does a very good blackbeard and black sails. He's like in three musketeers. About, I like that we're talking about types of pirates now. Like would you would you prefer a, a, a gritty pirate, a gay pirate? Uh what do you prefer? What do you prefer? Samoan pirate. <laughs> to be fair, black sails is worth a watch. It's very good. A real life Somalian pirate, you know, all of them. That's what I was thinking of. Somalian, not Samoan. <laughs> Samoan's Samoan is some Polynesian. There's a really happy Polynesian guy. Shall we get started with this? Yeah. Charlotte, yeah, have you yes. got your bits? My bits? Yeah. Just check they're still there. Just like, just all, just all my bits. All your bits. Like my, mean, my, script, my script and stuff. Your script and stuff, your introductions and stuff. My introductions and stuff. To be fair, actually, I haven't prepared an introduction for this. What am I going to do? Well, you've got the intro to figure that out whilst I bring us in. Yeah. So welcome to Chewing the Plot, guys. Woo! The least enthused entrance to a podcast we, we always do. <laughs> We always sound very tired at the beginning. I noticed this when editing. We always sound very tired when we start. <laughs> Sunday, isn't it? It's like the end of the yeah. week, also the beginning of the week. 
Welcome to Chewing the Plot, a podcast which we will hope will be an exploration of all things fiction and likely help you cheat on whatever book report or media essay you are writing right now. Every month we take a look at a story, tale, icon, or whatever from a cultural history of being human and break it down into some anecdotes and pop culture references, not only giving you an overview of the narrative itself, but asking why it's had such an impact on our culture and society as it has. Overall, also giving us an excuse to read a lot of books, watch a bunch of films, and not feel like we wasted our lives in doing so. We're not scholars, we are not historians, we just have nothing better to do. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, you said we weren't enthused last time, so I thought I'd ramp it up. I think we started enthused last time, and then I gradually just grinded you down during Ghost World. So, so we're, we're going we're, back up again. We're, we're trying to get back up. We're trying to, trying to bring <laughs> that back. Trying to um, just build it all back. With that said, this week piloting alongside me through the tale chosen is our illustrious Charlotte Greenley, who last Woo! time. I think I was the most angry about Ghost World, so um, hopefully I can redeem myself redeem it, of actually right. doing something. Um, I wasn't. I don't know if I started off angry, but I definitely got caught in the riptide of anger and just <laughs> carried my way through that. What I loved and noticed was that the, you guys absolutely hated the main character and how visceral she was towards everyone, but it made you more visceral the more we discussed <laughs> it. It's like she's just gradually infected you. So last time. Charlotte picked a book, she picked Spirited Away, and is back with another animated feature. So to introduce the panel and the book, what are we discussing this week, Charlotte? We're talking about Peter Pan, and we're going to go with the main Disney animated movie um, for it. However, we are, I mean, all of the iterations are very similar. So we're going to be bringing things from all sorts of different ones that we've all watched separately and together and talk about things. And joining me today... In order of most likely, I'm sorry, I have to be a bit on the nose in this one, Jen, sorry. Most likely to have fun with me if we were self-isolated together, in order of uh, the most fun to the least fun, it's Brett Knight, it's Jen Darby, and Graham Cooley! Hey! I made it into seconds! Oh, I think me and Graham would kill each other. <laughs> I so. knew I was either going to end up first or last. Like, <laughs> there's no way I'm an in-between person. <laughs> I think if we self-isolated together, Graham, you would kill me first. I wouldn't kill you. For sure. Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? (laughs) Are you sure about that? Because he once said to me he couldn't spend a week together with me. So, Well, that's rude. Thank you. I said that at the time. There's a difference between spending a week with someone and killing someone. Just a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember that, that Jen's got self isolated, so I thought I'd, uh, thought I'd make it related. Yeah, sadly, Jen, Jen has been self isolating. Uh, we are recording this in what I believe is May. I think it's May. It what is May believe, now. What it you is. believe is May. What I believe is May. I've, I've lost track of things. But yeah, we're, we're in May. Um, so obviously, we are a little ahead from recording but it is it, we're, we're gradually coming out. So we're gradually getting there. But we are, I think this is episode five now. Yes. Six. Brett's six? shaking his head. Dramatic. It's six. Six. Seven. Six. Seven. Six. We're just saying numbers now. Starship was five. All right. Six. Then we have Ghost oh. World. Six. Six. And then oh, we all blanked yeah. out Ghost World. This is number seven. Yeah, we all just wiped Ghost World. <laughs> well, no, because oh, I forget uh, Macbeth was two part. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh. Yeah, Macbeth yeah. was too fast. Either way. And we've that's, come such a long way. We have, we have. That's right. We are discussing Peter Pan, the story of a magical boy who carries Wendy and her brothers across the sky to Neverland and his adventures with Captain Hook. Or to read that another way, the tale of an impish pan god who kidnaps children, but more on that later. 
Nice. Peter Pan is a beloved children's tale and has been reworked and remanufactured many times, but one thing never really changes, and that's the central figures of Pan. Wendy and Hook, who live as cultural icons to this day. And for this episode, we'll be focusing on the narrative of the 1953 Disney film, as Charlotte mentioned, and filling in the gaps with information from around the web, the play and the book, and to get us a nice overview of everything, because it's quite a complex tale in the end when you take all the sources and pull it all together. So on that note, Charlotte, if you would like to kick us off, would you please give us the story of Peter Pan in summary in one minute? Currently... The record of being able to do this only lies with myself still. Uh, I think I'm also the longest record. So can you join us on the one minute podium? That is the question. Okay, I can. I'm going to try and beat my spirited away time, which was really long. I haven't got a timer ready. Does anybody have time? Does anyone else have a timer? I'm going to watch the clock in three, two, one. They start off in a nursery. There's Wendy, Peter and John. No, we're not Peter and John. Wendy, John and Michael. Uh, the, the dad and the mom have an argument. Uh, they go out. Then Pan comes in, has to stick a shadow to each other. They then basically go, oh, let's do the flight together. They fly across the sky and go to Neverland because they never want to grow up because their dad was being a dick. They get to Neverland and then they realise that actually grown-ups are different in this world. They're just pirates and they hate each other and it's all crazy. and uh, um, So they um, end up going to a play and have fun and then they end up getting caught by some Indians because Hook's on a stupid like plan to try and kidnap some Tiger Lily and it's all it's all a bit mental so then they manage to save Tiger Lily they go back to the um, Indian camp there's a bunch of racism which we'll talk about later and then we're gonna go to the fact that then Wendy's like do you know what I don't like this world I want to go home and I'm happy to grow up now uh, there's a there's a whole thing where she sings a really nice song and then they basically all decide to go home after some like things that happen hook steals tinkerbell she rats out pan he then tries to kill pan they all end up on a ship they all think pan's dead there's a big fight and then they go home oh you were one you were one minute and 12 seconds (laughs) okay well you got better very close i think if you'd have started dead on the time yeah you paused right after jen's no but i think if you hadn't paused you'd be in like one minute five you were very close. I think I was like three minutes with Spirited Away, so this is like any advancement is good. I also like how because when you get quicker, you get louder. <laughs> <laughs> like awesome. you're forcing those words out of you. It's <laughs> so just my, my brain's like, what am I saying? And then I just start like, <laughs> I just yeah. <laughs> It's just it's when you're like, they're in the nursery, then they go thing, then they go there, then they go there, then it's Tiger Lily, <laughs> then I fight you, I fight you on a boat! <laughs> it's good, no thinking time, but that is fear found essentially, in just around one minute. Which brings us on to our next segment, and one of my favourite segments, which I like to call Just the Facts. Just the just Facts. Just the Facts. <laughs> We didn't plan that, and I loved it. No, that was good. So, Pan, as Peter Pan, as mentioned, was initially published in 1904 with the title Peter Pan, The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, or Peter and Wendy, depending on the depiction. In 1911, it was worked into a novel. Both editions created by J.M. Barry, who is a Scottish novelist and playwright. He wrote a number of successful books and plays, but his most well-known is, in fact, Peter Pan. Upon his death from pneumonia as well, he bequeathed the rights to the story of Peter Pan to Great Ormond Street Hospital for children in London and is the reason why it took so long for it to be adapted even by Walt Disney because he struggled to strike a deal having to buy the rights to make the film, which he, he doesn't like doing, does Disney? And the hospital continues to benefit from the story to this day, which I found quite a nice little thing. Hmm. 
Uh, so an odd fact about Jane Barry as well. He was married to Mary Ansell, an actress uh, he met through his plays. And it's thought, though married for many years, it was unconsummated when the couple had no children at all. In 1908, Mary began an affair with a man named Gilbert Cannon, who was 20 years her younger. And when finding out Barry nice. didn't ask for divorce, initially just that she end the affair, which she refused to do. He then asked for a separation as divorce was frowned upon. Uh, she refused, so they got divorced. However, Barry continued to support her with an annual allowance, even when she married Cannon on the terms that the money be handed over at an annual private dinner between him and her on the date of their anniversary. I went down the rabbit hole on Barry. That was, that's a great rabbit hole, though, because I didn't know any of that. And also, I've got a question, right? It's how is it a fact, or a, not a fact, but how is it that somebody has definitely thought they've not had children, therefore they've not had sex? It's unconsummated. Now, unless Barry and What's-Her-Face wrote it down. It. Yeah. Oh, did they? Where did they write this down? Well, most of the information I found about Jane Barry actually comes from his own diaries. <gasps> Ooh, so like the, the information around him is 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 complex but I'll, I'll get into more on that in the context of that later um so barry himself was the subject of the film finding netherland which I oh i like that text. um the original play itself is now as well public domain which is why it is a fan favorite for many schools to perform and many people to remake up till 1953 the film peter pan had traditionally been played by women yeah himself was yeah i can believe that yeah Um, there was also tradition in the play that whomever portrays the father thus portrays hook within the telling which was actually coincidental and done as an accident when the first play was put together as hook was originally played by the actress who was the mother in the original play but barry cast the father as hook when hook became a bigger part of the play because he didn't feel like the actress at the time could carry it away so it was just a replacement part, and then that's become a thing for the play whenever it's done. So whenever you see a isn't, film, it's meant to be the same guy. Isn't that interesting, though? Because you always think, oh, it's done for a really specific reason, like... The, psychological the, reasons, yeah, whatever you like want for it. Yeah, a psychological reason, like, is Hook the manifestation of, like, daddy issues or whatever, and has the same presence in Wendy's life or whoever's life. For, oh, oh, well... I mean, it, it does work. You, it's, you know, accidental concept, but it's there and it works. It lends itself yeah. to the story. Um, in 1953, the film was a modest success, the Disney film, uh, unlike the play, grossing only $6 million at the box office with a budget of only $4 million. So it only made $2 million, which isn't great for a film, which is a strange thing to say, only $2 million. But then you think you've also got to pay people and advertising and all these extra things which mm. go into putting a film out. But since the Disney story, it has spawned Multiple versions, as we mentioned, including uh, a Disney fairy series based on the Tinkerbell with friends, uh, two theme park rides at Disneyland's across the world, ice shows, video games, board games, comic books, which I realized today when I was going through comic books, that I actually own a copy of a Hook comic book. Yeah. It's a random issue, which I apparently picked up at some point. But numerous other adaptions on stage, screen, comics, and even radio, the story of Pan grasping imaginations, including but not limited to those formats. Um, there's also a version when Wendy grew up in 1928, which is a sequel play about Wendy. Uh, Hook, the 1991 Steven Spielberg adaption of Pan as an adult. Captain Hook, Adventures of Notorious Youth, a 2005 story about a young Captain Hook. 
Peter Pank, a 1990s <laughs> R-rated comic where Pan is an anarchist living in a punk land with a gang of lost boys, which I really want to read. Um, lost Girls, a 2006 unauthorized edition where Wendy, alongside Dorothy from Oz, Alice from, uh, from Wonderland, what? recounts their sexual experiences. And that was the last I wish I found. Oh my God. Oh my God. I, no joke, I have that somewhere because we did it Oh my god, this has all just come back to me in a flash of like grotesque pornography. It, it was we did it in our masters for something, and I can't remember why, but at the time we were all annoyed because it was like 25 quid for the book. Really? And it was literally just panels of like fairy tale Peter Pan pornography. There you go. I'd forgotten about that. What is this? It's oh my god. Peter Pan. No, it's Lost Girls no, even, a 2006 Lost version. Girls. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like a big coffee table one and it was all the art and the art was beautiful, but it was like like there was like reflections of shadows of like Wendy and Peter like doing it and things like that and it was very graphic. Right, they sell it at Forbidden Planet. I think we've seen it there before in Nottingham. <laughs> well, next time you're in a Forbidden Planet, just check out her Lost Girls, a 2006 novel. If you want to spend £25 on what essentially just sounds like fairy porn <laughs> it was the thing is though the artistry was beautiful but the whole thing was very um um yes visceral is the right word you'll never be the same again i'd forgotten and blocked that from my memory i've got an interesting fact Go on. peter pan so peter pan was in 1953 like you said mm-hmm. they didn't they then didn't create an animated movie again until 1955 but they also did seven films in between then whereas before the animated films been quite close together so i wonder Mm -hmm. if that loss affected what they did more than likely it would have affected how disney saw its net worth in creating animated films and whether it was worth it and the animated film produced after that was lady and the tramp it was which is one of my mom's favorite films oh i like that film J.R.R. tolkien was actually a big fan of peter pan and is said to have partially inspired the elves in his book originally as well peter pan was meant to have wings in the original telling um and the tinkerbell sound in the film is a aluminum aluminium cut and clang together as they couldn't find the right bell for the sound in the 1953 so it's just some aluminium which is being tinkled together um jm barry is also thought to have based the character of peter pan on his older brother david who died of an ice skating accident the day before his 14th birthday and his mother and brother thought of him as the forever boy and that is the final fact i have Hmm. just the facts just the facts with all that said it's time for a bit of context (laughs) Moving on from, you know, the pornography and death of brothers. Now, as we've alluded to with the discussion of the marriage of Jane Barry, it's quite a unique personality. Um, He had a way of looking at the world which simply put many couldn't, and growing up he had quite an odd life himself. So born in Kiermuir, Angus, he was born to a conservative Calvinist Christian family. His father, a weaver, his mother had assumed the role of matriarch to her own household at the age of eight. Barry himself was the ninth child of the house and grew up to be only five foot three. Oh, that's how tall I am. Little Bobby. When he was six, as mentioned, his brother died during an ice skating accident and it devastated his mother. James, wanting to support her, tried to fill his place um, as David was the favourite at the time and even went as far as dressing as him and whistling in the manner that he did. And they found a connection through this and they would entertain one another with stories from Robinson Crusoe and Pilgrim's Progress, which, if you recall, is the book which Little Women is based on. 
He worked through his teens, play with his friends, and the tales of being pirates in a sort of ongoing odyssey. And he mentioned would later become the main inspiration for Peter Pan. And that's how he spent most of his youth. So from an early time, his life and imagination and support were a huge thing for Barry. He'd found he could escape his hardships, but he could also connect with other people's imaginations by opening their worldviews. He began writing and his career led him back to successes with back-to-back successes uh, with Quality Street, a tale about a respectable old maid who poses as her flirtatious niece. The oh. scandal of it all. Um, and the Admiral Christian, a story about a rich family becoming shipwrecked with their servants and the dynamic shift ensuing. He was then essentially in a position to make whatever he wanted. And so he did. Barry often found himself wanting to discuss social issues in his work. Like previous stories, he decided to make something for children, uh, but in such a way that adults would get the messages as well. That's what he wanted to try and create, which I think is why the story becomes so discussed. It leaves enough vagueness to make you question what you're seeing. But as a child, you generally only see the fantastical. You look at it and you see the magic. Yeah. Uh, Bernard Shaw put it very well, saying ostensibly, it is a holiday entertainment for children, but really a play for grown up people. It's like the OG play for kids, but really for adults. Yeah. Like, you know, like a lot of Disney sort of played on in more recent. Yes. Yeah, which is the irony of it, that Disney do that now as their as their trope, essentially. Mm. <laughs> um, especially within Pixar. Like Pixar's big on doing that. Mm. Make it for kids, but make it so adults can watch it because you know you're going to have to sit through it with your kids. But what really inspired him was meeting the Llewellyn Davis family. Oh, it's sad. Sorry. I didn't think it was that sad. It's quite sad. It's quite sad, but not like that sad. I need to hear the story to decide. Well, in 1987, Barry met boys George, Jack and Peter with their nanny in Kensington Gardens. 1987? Yes. Okay. No, no. 1987. 1887. I was going to say that sounds... 1887. When was it written? Like 1912? Well, later in the text there, it's like 1907. So he went back in time. 80 years. Yeah, 1887. I'll rework that. There we go. In 1887, <laughs> Barry met boys George, Jack and Peter with a nanny in Kensington Gardens whilst walking his dog, Porthos. Oh, one of the three musketeers. He entertained them with stories and his ability to wiggle his eyebrows and ears. Speaking his eyebrows. Eyebrows. Um, and then later, he met their mother, Sylvia, at a dinner party. He soon became a regular visitor to their household. This was odd, as both were in fact married to other people, and in the 1900s, you don't befriend random women you meet in parks. But nonetheless, he made up tales like he had for his friends as a kid, and thus was born the story of Peter Pan, concocting things from the imaginations of the children he was playing with and from his own. So in 1907, the father of the children died, and Barry became Uncle Jim and continued to financially provide for them. And in 1910, when Sylvia, the mother, died, he became ward to the children. I told you it was sad. Oh, that is sad, sad, but... It's like the 1900s. Everyone dies. Yeah, that makes it it okay. (laughs) That makes the loss of... They're orphaned. Yeah. They were lost boys. That's sad. Quite sad. I mean, I have... It is sad. They were real people. So what's unique to him was that he often had relationships with children, uh, which fed his imagination again. And there have been suggestions. No, I'm yeah. about to get into that. So there has been suggestions of paedophilia about him, but never evidence and spe- speculation. And even with his marriage unconsummated, I personally, I think there's a high likelihood that he may have just been non-sexual as a person. 
I was about to say, I think people don't think about this. Like, people who can't have children are sometimes... Um, oh, it's going to sound so pedophilic, but I don't mean it. But, like, people who can't have children like spending time with children because they know they can never have children, if that makes any yeah. sense. But then it's like, you think of someone like Enid Blyton as well, who Enid Blyton was loved, like, writing for children and entertaining children, but she really didn't like her own children. Like, she was a shit mother. Yeah. Um, like, if you read um, the stories... The... throwing shade at Enid Blyton here. Well, if you, if you read, like, all the historical stuff and the autobiography, and there's actually a really good TV show that was um, Helena Bonham Carter played her. And um, she, uh, like, notoriously would throw, like, tea parties and things for other children and tell them magical stories while completely neglecting her own children and her own responsibilities as a mother. Did not like her own children, but wanted to entertain other children. It's just one of those things. I think, especially with it being in the 1900s, most would have been unfamiliar with anyone who would be completely non-sexual. I mean, obviously, in a modern era, we're much more aware of different people's sexualities and genders and and all these things. Mm. Whereas it's the 1900s, it's man, woman, and man, woman has child. That's... That's yeah. essentially law. So we could fact, not know any... Yeah. yeah, so he wouldn't have probably written anything down had there been anything going on, whether he was into anything else or anyone else. Yeah. Um, we don't so, know. Yeah, obviously. And with that ambiguity leads people to assume deviousness, um, which, you know, it will do. And his, his relationships from the outside in the 1900s probably would have seemed wrong. It would have seemed devious because you're, you're in that system and you, you're heavily controlled. So Nico Llewellyn Davis who is one of the boys, uh, as an adult cited, I don't believe that Uncle Jim ever experienced what one might call a stirring in the undergrowth for anyone, a man, a woman, or child. He wrote to biographer Andrew Birkin in 1978, he was an innocent, which is why he could write Peter Pan. (laughs) Is that a a pen in your pocket or a stirring in your undergrowth? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Stirring in the undergrowth. The irony as well is not lost here of Neverland's other biggest namesake is, of course, Michael Jackson. And so many question his own sexuality and everything which belongs to everything around that. So there's a a strange kind of causality which comes with the name Neverland and the story of Peter Pan for the people who do get involved with it. As depicted in Finding Neverland and despite the success, Barry had trouble getting the production approved. He was making a play for children and explaining ideas to adults was proving difficult. Uh, For instance, having a dog as a nanny and the names he chose for characters, they weren't dignified and and Barry didn't want them to be. He wanted them to inspire children, but he also wanted a warning. His own life had been filled with hardship and tragedy and surrounding him in the 1900s and was formed full of practicality and firm lines. And his play was a revolt to that. He wanted it to be odd, to be silly, but to be wary. He himself believed Pan was neither good nor evil, and he saw him as an agent of chaos. Even when a statue was put up overnight in 1912 of Pan in honour of his book, he remarked that he was disappointed with it, as it didn't capture the devil inside Peter. Peter Pan is a great story because it leaves so much to the imagination, much like Barry's life, and has always been cause for speculation, even when it was initially released. So, is this a drug-filled hallucination? Is Pan real? Is he good, evil, or just feeding a need? Is Hook his father? Are they one and the same? And most of all, why doesn't Smee have a movie of his own? With all that said, <laughs> let us dive in, chew <laughs> through what is sure to be another destruction of a childhood classic, Peter Pan. Mr. Smee! That'd just be the, that'd just be the title. I mean, 
that's, all, that's all you would need to title it. Just Mr. Shmee. Shmee. A lesson in good form. There you go. There's a subtitle. Did Pan show good form when he did this to me? Best, best line in the film. Best line in the movie. So, as we lead into the introduction to Peter Pan, the intro to the Disney movie begins simply with a narration of Peter, of how he has come to know the family known as the Darlings, which, by the way, I hate as a name. Yes, me too, don't worry. I don't know why either. Um, they have that, that awful, that, that stupid, like, family moment where someone's like, oh, darling, they were like, yes? And they're like, not you, I was talking to him. I mean, I also, I also get it when I answer the phone when I'm back at my parents, like, Mr. Knight's there? And I'm just like, yeah, which one do you want to talk to? There's like five of us. There's not there's three, but they don't know that. They don't know how many people you're hoarding in your house. Either way, we're off track already. So all this has happened before and all of this will happen again, but this time it happened in London. We're told very uh, what was that? In Bloomsbury. It's very specific about the part of London when you, in, the, in the movie. Funnily enough, the literary part of London. We're told very early on in a very matter-of-fact way that there is a character called Peter Pan and he will visit a household and that household for this evening is the Darlings because, well, they believe in him. It's all the reason he needs. We meet Mr and Mrs Darling preparing for an evening out in the town in Bloomsbury, London, which from my research is an area of London I will never be able to live in. (laughs) Which happens... I don't think anyone can afford to live in... (laughs) Which also happens to be an affectation of children's characters in other stories, because Paddington Bear also lives there. Yeah, um, they're, the, they're, the, they're the pretty, if anyone doesn't know, they're like the pretty white-fronted um, townhouses that like don't look that fancy from the outside, but you obviously know that they're going to be very it was expensive. The, it was like the literary capital, wasn't it? It was the, yeah. it was the place for authors, philosophers, etc. to be was Bloomsbury. So Mrs. Darling believed that Peter Pan was the spirit of youth, but Mr. Darling was a practical man, is what we're told, despite his buffoonery and missing cufflinks. In the very <laughs> it's poppycock! But father, it's not poppycock. We then meet the children. The boys, however, John and Michael, uh, believe Peter Pan. Is it John and Michael or is it? It's John and Michael. Yeah, it's John and Michael. Mm-hmm. I, was, I, I got real unsure because I started calling one of them Peter as I started to write yes, the notes and that became yeah. a problem. Um, so John and Michael believe Peter Pan was a real person and made him the hero of all their nursery games. We see them play fighting Pan versus a Captain Hook who declares he's lost his hand to Pan, but they are quickly chastised by Wendy for using the wrong hand, but in a very gentle way. And almost instantaneously, we're shown that Wendy is a mix of her mother and father. She's caring enough that, she, that she's looking after her siblings, but practical is that she corrects them and is tidying up. Uh, Wendy, well she She's actually a massive nerd who spends all her time looking at like the lore of Peter Pan, so she knows all the facts. That's what yeah, it is. That's me right now. Um, so, <laughs> Wendy, the eldest, not only believed, um, she was the supreme authority on Peter Pan and all his marvelous adventures. She says, like... Oh no, Michael! It was the left hand. Enjoying these Wendy impressions. You have really been into this You've film, haven't it. you? <laughs> I watched it like a few weeks ago. I just, I just, I love, I love George Darling. He's such a cool guy. Like, well, then, I, mean, I, I hate to disagree with you, but carry on. He just has funny lines. We're then throwing a curveball as behind a wall. We're told of Nana bringing the kids their tonic medicine, which also happens to be a dog, and thus keeps her opinions to herself. The boys boisterous and fighting as Nana again, the dog, tidies the room only for the scene to then be bookended by Mr. Darling entering and undoing all of Nana's work 
as Peter, playing Hook, is slain as an old Bill Trent. In this time, Mr. Dowling is still looking for his gold cufflinks. Something we learn the boys have half-inched as treasure from their games, and something which greatly frustrates their father, as he discovers his shirt front has also been utilised to draw a treasure map on. I tried to find the right term for that bib thing, which he's wearing, and I cannot find it. I'll do like, some searching right now. Yeah, like I, I, I feel like there is a term for it, but all I could think of was shirt front. So if there is, shout me out. Um, Michael attempts to play with his father, but his dad rebukes him. Don't paw at me, Michael. Which I think is an interesting choice of words in that he perhaps he sees his children more like animals than people and yet has a dog as a nanny. And here with the entrance of mother, finally answers Wendy has been telling the stories of Peter Pan and being children have ran with them crafted their play around them, and in doing so brought chaos to the little house. Even as they were told off, they tried to reason their actions, refusing to believe that they did anything wrong. This isn't the first time it would seem. So it seems worth knowing Wendy is a bit of a brat in this scene. Um, Despite knowing she's going to be told off by dad, yelling after all, she ignores him, running straight to her mum to deflect complimenting her, and even suggests her dad ruined his own shit. It's crafty, but also selfish, refusing to accept that she may have had a hand in any of this. Mr. Darling, that's no excuse, Wendy, have I warned you. Stuffing the boys' heads with a lot of silly stories. Can I just step in? Go on, you find out. They're known as interlined shirt bosoms. <laughs> That's not what I expected. <laughs> I typed in old school plasticky shirt front and uh, that's what came up. However, can I just say something about Wendy in this scene? I think yeah, if you come into the scene and Wendy's being like super grown up, right? Because she's like, in that possible way, so... She's like 13 in this, I think, We when I looked up her age. I think you're looking for me for an answer, but I don't actually have No, but like, I think she's about 13. <laughs> so she's like putting loads of stuff away. She's cleaning. She's tidying. Like, she's doing essentially what she's probably seen her mum do a thousand times, right? And then it just happens to be that when Mrs. Darling walks in and he's a total dick, she's like, the childness in her comes out because she's still a child. And then it's the very, like, it's the juxtaposition of the two that her dad doesn't actually see her doing all the tidying and sorting out and bits and then just assume she's being a child when she's trying to play with Thingy. Not to mention when he walked in, he wrecked most of the setup yeah! which Nana had done anyway. So it didn't really... I would point out that prob- she probably never saw her mother do it. She probably saw the maid do it because they live yeah, in the fancy it's only because you don't. It's only because you don't see a maid and they have a dog. So I yeah, only assume Nana. that... Like... Yeah. But that's the crux of it, isn't it? That's the conflict of father versus daughter. A daughter who believes wholeheartedly in something she cannot prove as well. Um, the father believing she is leading his, his sons astray and upsetting what he sees as the balance in the house. And mother... Women, am I right? <laughs> well, she just kind of stands there, mother, during these scenes. Um, but then this is the 1900s. You know, uh, they didn't have much options and you couldn't even vote yet. Mr. Darling says, I mean it, young lady, this is your last night in the nursery and that's my last word on the matter. And last night before he, she grows up and moves um, out of the nursery. Exactly. What it's reminding me of actually is the kind of delusion which sets in um, when kids dedicate their lives to fiction. Um, you see it a lot nowadays with fandoms and anime kids and there's a whole section of like waifus which i really suggest you don't google um but you also see it in games and movies and you get people wanting to be the characters or in that universe happened with lord of the rings happened with avatar anything involving werewolves and vampires you see people get fully consumed by fiction and explaining that as a teen or as a child to an adult is hard, especially if like Mr. Darling, they won't listen. So they just dive deeper into the fantasy because that's where they find it more comfortable and the rift gets bigger. So instead of asking why they're trying to escape reality instead, they just lock themselves away. So there's a real risk of that, that you can lose someone to fiction 
essentially at this age if it's not well managed. But that's what parenting all is all about. From the you kids. know, not letting your dog bloody parent your children. Probably like parenting one hundred and one. Do not let dog parent children. Oh, but back <laughs> in the day, it was them. Um, the original nanny dog was a Newfoundland, and they were like the dogs that looked after children. They let a dog look after my kids, rather than I have to do it. Jesus. <laughs> They're so big and fluffy. I love them so much. What makes me laugh as well is the ultimate punish- punishment. It's about time you had your own room. No, oh, like, all the space I could have. Oh, oh no, <laughs> I have my own room. Uh, which, of course, is in the modern era of this day of overpopulation and uh, smaller houses, it's a, it's, it's a bonus. You, know, you get your own room, you get your own space. Uh, my own room, uh, where I don't have to share with what will soon be two teenage boys and I can do whatever I want with. The horror. Um, but back in this period, it was the equivalent of starring someone in a broom closet especially if you're a woman. Um, they weren't useful and they weren't needed, so they were locked away. And for Wendy being female, to put that to the side and stop infecting the boys' minds with imagination, because, you know, patriarchy doesn't allow creativity, um, until she could be, you know, a sensible woman who they could likely marry off to someone proper, this is a real punishment. But when you listen to it, you're like, that doesn't seem that bad. Contextually. Charlotte's note in the script, again, is, fuck women, am I right? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, there's a couple of notes in the script where I'm just like, God, everyone's being a dick to Wendy, aren't they? There's also a tiny bit of subtle symbolism here as well, um, where Nana builds a castle uh, with the blocks of the house with everything in order, and Mr. Darling destroys it and three times, seeing the household fall so often. If he'd have kept his temper and the boys had minded their games, none of this would have happened, and life would have rolled on. Subtle bit of mis-en-scene for you there in the film. That said, during a scuffle where the children and mother take the dog's side, Mr. Darling then kicks Nana out into the cold. Poor Nana! Solidifying. Not poor Nana. What an absolute balance. Poor Nana. What about poor father? (laughs) Tying over outside, solidifying his practicality that there is no nurse dog to him. It's just a dog. Sometimes people have to grow up. The guy that voiced George Darling has the best, like, ooh, ever, where he's like, oh, Nana, ooh, such a good noise. <laughs> well, Mrs. Darling tries to atone for the husband's behavior, tucking the kids in, but the whole time the children just comfort each other and hold on to the belief that Peter Pan is real. Michael returns the cufflinks and mother closes the window as Wendy tells her not to, as she's expecting Peter to come back that evening, as she found something which belongs to him his shadow and we actually see for a moment her mother worry about her daughter that line doesn't sit well with her and it didn't sit well with me when i heard it as an adult either i'm expecting him to come back leave the window open Um, but nonetheless the children get really (laughs) seeply especially in 1800s london like (laughs) the children get real sleepy real quick and the darlings go out for an evening Got a fun fact for you here. So I actually looked this up online because there's a bit of debate how quickly the children go from hyper to tired, a very short period of time. I know um, what you're going to say. I already know what you're going to say, but carry on. But they describe this idea of belief between three people as well. Um, you know, these kids are in a belief together. They have this belief in, in something which is going on and they think it's entirely true. And it plays into this psychiatric term called a folie adieu, or toi in this case, uh, where people share the same delusion and was brought forth as an idea in the 19th century, along with the folly in pussy, which is a, in which a dominant person, person uh, such as Wendy, imposes a delusional belief or episode on other people. And mental health being its infancy in the time uh, kind of reflects on the worry Mr. Darling had. There were many studies, some humane, some very much not humane, on psychosis and fear 
of your children becoming one of them was very real. And one of the most causes being social isolation with the same group of people. So as Mr. Darling in the 1900s, when you're hearing a lot of things about insanity and psychosis, you're going to worry when your kids say stuff like this. Like, Are you... Are you suggesting that kids having an imagination is a mental illness? No, I'm suggesting that Mr. Darling has what I'd call satanic panic about mental health in his children. Yeah, I mean, of course, as well, we know, we know this is exploring imagination, which you would do as a child and, and, and going to bed and, and being sleepy and all these kinds of things. Um, Wendy, to, to me, when looking at this, Wendy looks personally a little further gone than the boys in her delusion stuff like leaving the windows open um but just the way she speaks as a 12 year old 12 year old there we go that's solidified oh, she's 12 there you go. <laughs> her mom thinks too suggesting Wednesday imposing peter pan on top of another figure who might come to harm her and that's what her mom worries about i was just gonna say that kids kids like young kids do just fall asleep though like they will go from like mental to full out out for the count could talk around them for 12 hours straight but fun fact number two also plays into this so y'all remember that tonic nano was pouring out yeah so in the 20th century it was common to give children a tonic before bed to help them sleep and can you guess what was in said tonic drugs yes drugs morphine and other narcotics (laughs) jesus christ (laughs) So when kids you guys don't know enough about the history of drugs, guys. Um, you need to step up your game. They do. Like, yeah, when you, when you think about the kids going really sleepy, they've been given this tonic, and the, again, adds to this whole idea that this delusion they share could be just completely added to by things they were being fed, and then the parents' reaction to it, and all that. It stacks up very nicely to just be a trippy film. But this cannot be ignored, because despite the oddity, Peter Pan arrives at ten minutes into the film, perched on top of a roof hopping from chimneys. Reminds me of Mary Poppins, that bit. <laughs> As I kind of alluded to there, much like Spirit Away, Peter Pan has a plethora of theories about what it actually represents. You know, there's things like the afterlife, the idea that they're all deluded and none of it really happens, that Peter Pan's a delusion cooked up by Wendy to cover sexual abuse, that Peter Pan's evil oh. and traps people in Neverland. And really, oh, as we I- go... F- I God. really didn't think we could go so off track with Peter Pan. I was like, Peter Pan is safe. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, but I you know. entrust the research to me. Yeah, then... good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah, as we go through this, there's, you, there's time to consider all of these. But that said, at its root, we need to remember this is a children's story. Um, they'll see it as they see it. And we can likely, as much as our brains don't want to, take a lot of this at surface value. It's just nice to know the context. As such, with a very evil grin... Peter Pan shows up hunting for his shadow, followed by a light sparkling. He tries to be quiet, searching with Tinkerbell, who is a fairy friend. They search Nana's bed, the toy box, and we get to see Tinkerbell, who Charlotte describes as dummy thick. (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to comment on the fact that this is a children's film from the 1950s, right? And she is so thick. They've made her like this bizarre, like the way that she looks as well. Yeah, she's like, like she's a, a teeny proper... tiny sexual adult. Yeah, she's like a very like a pinup doll, isn't she? Really? Yeah, she like... is. She's she looks like a pinup doll. She looks like a Barbie. Uh, Tink's quite vain and jealous, uh, checking herself out in the mirror, worrying about her thighs, getting annoyed when Peter looks in on Wendy. But she does discover his shadow is locked up in a drawer. Peter attempts to whip it out, but is stuck, and the struggle. Does <laughs> <Chelsea. laughs> <Amazing. Chelsea. laughs> um, But it's stuck. 
in, in the struggle wakes up a sleeping Wendy whilst fighting with his shadow. Wendy then begins to launch into a monologue Shakespeare would have been proud of. Which I'm going to have to take a deep breath if I want to go through this. <gasps> it's a pan. Oh, Peter, I knew you'd come back. I saved your shadow for you. Oh, I do hope it isn't rumpled. You know, you look exactly the way I thought you would. Oh, a little taller, perhaps. But then, oh, you can't, you can't stick it on with soap, Peter. It needs sewing. That's the proper way to do it. Although, come to think of it, I never thought about it before. Mm, I'm sewing shadows, I mean, of course. I knew it was your shadow the minute I saw it. And I said to myself, I'll put that away for him until he comes back. Oh, he's sure to come back. And you did, didn't you, Peter? After all, one can't leave a shadow lying about, not, not miss it sooner or later. Oh, you don't agree. What if you don't see? But I still don't understand this how Nana got it in the first place. She isn't really. Oh, sit down. It won't take long. She really isn't vicious, you know. She's a wonderful nurse. Although father says girls talk too much. Peter interrupts. <laughs> the, the he then just tells her to get on with sewing his shadow. <laughs> I I think I put it in my script. I was like, she literally does the longest amount of talking here. It's crazy. Finally, a, a female character getting to voice their opinions briefly. God forbid so many opinions it's just no, I think it's, it's very train also, of consciousness just when, like... you, when you watch it it reminds me of me when i can't hold the conversation when i'm just like i've been waiting so long to tell you all of this information so i need to tell you all at once immediately and i'm gonna say exactly what i think when i think it that is me that is 100% me. So it's a lot to unpack, but really there's only one important line in that entire thing. Despite their stories and her in-depth knowledge of him, they have never met and she's never seen him in person. Meanwhile, Tink's thighs have got her stuck in a drawer hole. Getting slammed in there again. We've always been there, haven't we? Getting slammed in there again by Wendy as she rambles. Peter reveals he's been listening to her stories about him because ego knows no bounds when you're Peter Pan. Who then takes them back to the last Lost Boys? Overall, this suggests something odd. How does Wendy get the stories if the person she's telling about uses the stories to tell the people in his life about his life? This, of course, gives credence to a couple of ideas. One, that Peter Pan is just Wendy's imagination. And two, Peter isn't as great as he makes out as he uses someone else's tales to accent his own life. Isn't as great as everyone makes out. Yeah, I we were talking to my mom about this briefly. And uh, she just been, oh, the animated one, though. She's like, he's a bit of a tit, isn't he? And that was it. Which is why we didn't watch it as much as a child. Because... My mum thought he was a bit of a badly behaved child. He was a bit spoiled. She was like, oh, he's just a spoiled brat. This implied as well, Peter only appearing after the Darlings left, that he has been listening to it in, in on them and it offers to take Wendy to Neverland to escape her punishment. So he knows Not all about it. at all. Wendy tells him she has to grow up, to which Peter reacts with complete shock. But what's interesting is that he's not concerned with her crying or plight of her family, just that there will be no more stories. You grow up, there's going to be no more stories. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Tink, also freeing herself from the drawer with some brute strength to stop the whole situation during this conversation. Nonetheless, Peter encourages her to go to Neverland with him, so she'll never grow up. Which, the more I write, the more sinister it sounds. And I was thinking why this is, and this is because the media uses it as a tagline a lot when kids get killed. A lot of newspapers to get us. Oh. He, he was young and now he'll never grow up. And that is a oh. consistent tagline. It's also now, revealed. Never thought about that before, but now, now I am. You're welcome. Oh. Um, it's also revealed here that Pierre doesn't know what a mother is. Wendy wonders what hers would think, but he's not heard the terms, which, the term, which is a nice contrast and kind of suggests he's never had the balance Wendy has had with her parents. Yes, Mr. Darling is a strict tough, but her mother is there to balance the act. If people, Peter had only ever had what we're shown as a father, of course, you'd want to run away. If you only had Mr. Darling... <laughs> You wouldn't want to be in that that situation. You need that. You need that balance. On hearing though that a mother tells stories, Peter is excited to make Wendy the lost boy's mother, which is kind of creepy. And she, she's Blake's in love 
with Peter Pan. As she's overexcited and does what Wendy does best, which is externally monologuing once again, and I won't read that one out, she mentions she'll give Peter a kiss as a reward. I'd like to point out, there's nothing wrong with externally monologuing on behalf of Charlotte and I. I'm not saying there is, I'm just saying I'm not reading that one out. I don't have, no, I have well, the I word. You went, she externally monologues. <laughs> Good God. I can say it more with a more fluidness. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let me roll back. Do, 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 do. As she's overexcited and does what exter- Wendy does best, which is externally monologue. Yay! She mentions she'll give Peter a kiss as a reward. Tink is hell angry about this news, but again shows Peter's naivety as he also doesn't know what a kiss is. This is a weird sexualized female rivalry they've shoved in there, which like that women should be competition. And bearing in mind, this is a 13 year old golden girl and a sexualized pinup fairy. Super weird. The kiss as well is, is an interesting one because in the play, a, and it, as you've seen in the, the 2003 Peter Pan film, a kiss because Peter doesn't know what it is becomes a thimble becomes that's a, in hook as well yeah and it's in hook as well and I didn't I never understood that in hook I never understood why it was such a thing it's because um, that's in the original play and the original play a kiss is a thimble because he doesn't know what one is until he gets one much later on in the film whereas in the Disney film the thimble's not brought into it it's just seen as a kiss but Tink interrupts that because you're not gonna have can I can I just step in very quickly with a fun random fact go on the voice of Mr. Darling also voices the OG Grinch in the uh, the Grinch TV oh. show. Just just as a fun fact, he also did a bunch of other voice acting. He was essentially a very OG voice actor. I love it when you find out those because if you watch, there's some films that I watch and I think I know that voice. Like you know when you're like I know that voice, and they're in like five or six of that time, and they do like it's just the same set of voice actors that they used. Disney yeah. did that so much, yeah. Yeah, he had a he had a long career, nineteen thirty eight to nineteen eighty six. Oh, just before uh, Barry met those kids in a park. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, nineteen eighty seven. Uh- <laughs> never living that one down. <laughs> what I found interesting here is we're given a concept of never growing up, and on visual appearance, Peter is about Wendy's age, um, but his mental intelligence is about that of Wendy's little brother. He knows nothing. Um, so do you go to Neverland and just ignore the world and not grow but your body does? Or is Peter just manipulating the situation again? So Tink then cockblocks the whole situation, as mentioned, waking up John and Michael in the process, who instantaneously recognise Peter with no introduction at all, which is odd. Um, Peter pushes back at first in the idea of them all going, but providing they take orders, he's okay with it. Honestly. <laughs> I don't set out to ruin these things, but Peter Pan makes that difficult. <laughs> just just do what, do what we say do what you're told and I'm going to take your sister and then there's a whole flying scene is the way Charlotte described this next part I'm sorry, I, it's like <laughs> one of my least favourite songs of the entire thing and yeah I like go- it, you've just cut through the bones of it and I enjoy that like it's a flying scene <laughs> yeah. we, know, the much scene. we know what it looks like it's a sort of a silhouette of them against London travelling to Netherlands in a sort of line behind Peter yeah. With one of them dragging a bear, I can't remember which one. Michael. Uh, also, Michael. also offsetting the time on Big Ben by about fifteen minutes, screwing over everyone's plans in London. Like, yeah, just rude. Just clever vandalism. <clears throat> clever, clever vandalism. <laughs> Just before the flying scene, though. Uh, Peter, so Peter reveals he can fly, you know, and will teach the team. But he's puzzled as he's never tried to define how he actually flies. Like it came naturally to him. Hashtag privilege. But the basic idea is you lock onto a wonderful, happy thought, and that will help you fly. 
What's your wonderful thought? Are you actually asking? I'm asking you guys. Are you actually asking? What is your wonderful thought? I'm tapping out. Today is not the day to ask me that. Um... Harder to do, right? Kids can do it instantaneously. Yeah, but when kids, it'll be shit like having burgers for tea. That's getting a Mackey's. This is why doing like practicing gratitude every day, you know, like jotting down like gratitude stuff because they're like things that make you happy as an adult. Fucking a cup of tea in the sunshine. Yeah, do you know what, Charlotte? Mine is very like that. Yeah, like dog, tea, garden in the sun. Done. I also like if you watch the the Pan film with Hugh Jackman, <clears throat> the way Peter finds out that he can fly is being kicked off a pirate ship which is floating in the air, and Hugh Jackman does the most badass turn kick as he kicks into his chest and just says, "Think a happy thought," and kicks him off the chair. <laughs> it's like that's perfect. That's what what's yours, Brett? Brett didn't answer. Brett's just not happy. Yeah, that's the thing. That's a secret. I'm never happy. He's like the Hulk, but emo. <laughs> <laughs> no, because he dumb stuff, stuff makes Brett happy, like having True. chocolate spread on toast. He said Ooh. about he said about kids like old burgers with tea, but I know if I've said Brett your home peanut butter peanut butter and banana on toast, he'd be like sick. Fuck yes. So yeah. Peter can fly, but you know the darlings can't, even with their happy thoughts. So they'll need something extra, which is pixie dust, which Peter then shakes out of Tinkerbell. Yeah. I- be a bit pissed off if I was Tinkerbell too. He also like absolutely spanks out of her. He like holds her wings, which I imagine for a fairy is yeah. very offensive. Like just grabs her wings. And there's a lot of, There's a lot of <laughs> She's a bot. Like there is a lot of consent issues around that moment. It also made me think that Tinkerbell's kind of like a moth because it, that, that, like that's all I could relate it to because moths are covered in dust. And like they leave it everywhere, and now I'm like, well, fairies, if they're covered in dust, then just leaves it everywhere. It's kind of like a weird little moth thing. Just magic dust, isn't it? Just magic dust. With that magic dust, they take flight over Victorian London, which basically, according to this sequence, only has one landmark, which we have mentioned. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to say, I was like, I was watching it, and I was like, I feel like you think about landmarks when you go to London, you think about like uh, the the. Millennium Eye, you think about all of those things, and I'm like, they didn't exist then. It was yeah, it's like the 1900s. If you look at that, but then as well, in the other versions, whether it's taken from that Disney version or it's something that was sort of, I don't know. I, I guess is it was it one of the only kind of major cultural landmarks. It must have been like one of the main big buildings. Well, because yeah. if you think about it, there wasn't as many other things there. It's that old Parliament, that isn't it? Because what. When was when was Buckingham Palace built? Because that was Victoria. Yeah. I'm also thinking, to be fair, um, if you think about where Bloomsbury is in London, which I've just double-checked where it is, it is right on top of Big Ben. Like, you would have right. been able to, probably back then, without the high-rises and stuff, you probably would have been able to see it from their house. Well, I had a thought about this when I was watching Hook as well, because it is in the 2013 version and in this, but they literally fly straight out of the window and they're like, ah, we're at Big Ben. And it's basically like they live on South Bank. Yeah, they so they do. What so we know is South Bank. So but... basically, it's around. It's sort of they live near the British Museum. Uh, yeah, Bloomsbury is so, that, and that is literally like about a ten minute walk from South Bank. Yeah. Fun fact about London! Fun fact about London. Um, So they fly away, much to Tinkerbell and Nana's discomfort, and they're off to Neverland. Though I do find, like, it's adorable that they put Tinkerbell dust on Nana, but also, like, it's only on a butt, so she almost garrots herself, and it makes me uncomfortable every time I see it. (laughs) But we follow the second star to the right, and you go straight on till morning is the line, which is 
carried on through practically every Peter Pan film. Also, terrible navigation skills. Second star to the right. right, Sorry, didn't realize there's only two stars in the sky. Second star to the right, straight until morning. Then suddenly, pirates. Can I, before we carry on, on. talk about how it's really clever and something that's not not really related to the story, so I'm sorry. But um, how a lot of people talk about how all Disney films are interrelated. Because in The Princess and the Frog, there that's when this apparently the second star to the right is like created because there's two bright stars <gasps> in the sky. It's Evangeline. Yeah, so they talk it's about Evangeline. Oh, that moment link. is devastating. There's, there's like if you ever Google it, there's a lot of like, oh, Disney is all in- interconnected. All Disney movies are interconnected. But me and Brett basically debunked this immediately by a lot of the Disney worlds aren't real and done in countries that aren't real. Um, but you know, it's interesting. It's fun facts. Is it a fun fact? Evangeline and what was he called? Uh, Ray. Ray. Oh, that was such an emotional moment. I remember crying at that. Yeah. So, good morning, shipmates. We have pirates and introducing my favourite character of the Peter Pan franchise. Shock. Mr. Shmee. Mr. Shmee. If we were all going to be characters in Peter Pan, who are we? Brett Smee. I'm sorry. Sorry. (laughs) He's my favourite character, so I'm, I'm okay with it. Graham, you've got the look of a Captain Hook. Yeah! I do have more beard I than mean, Captain Hook, but yeah. Beard, hair. I feel like I could the... be just generic pirate, though. Like, yeah, but quite easily. you've got to pick a character that's no point picking generic pirate. It's like going, I'll be extra number four. Be the guy, be the guy in the crow's nest who rocks out the old accordion. Good. I do die very quickly. What about you two? I... Th- are you Wendy? There's not many female characters to choose from here, is there? Say, so you, you I, could pick male characters and personality. I feel it. like I'm quite a Michael, the little kid who's really dumb. Like I feel like I'm kind of a bit like him. He's bear. Um, yeah, he's a little bear. And to be fair, I have a bear that I sleep with at home. So yeah, that's me. I don't know if I am Wendy or... I think you could be Wendy, especially with your stream of consciousness, you know. That is true. There are parts of me that are very much like a 13-year-old girl, I suppose. (laughs) I'll be Wendy. I love it. Star of the show. So it's quickly established that the pirates on Captain's Hook ship, which is docked in Neverland, are tired of being on land and want to go sailing. And the Hook has gone a little, little bit mad. Smee heads in to give him a shave. Blast that Peter Pan. If only I could find his hideout. I'd trap him in his lair. But where is it? Mermaid Lagoon? No, we've searched that. We've combed Cannibal Cove. Here, here. No, 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 no. That's Indian territory. But wait. Those redskins know this island better oh. than me own ship. Yes. Oh. Be prepared. There is. There's, there, we'll, uh. we'll get into it later. But yeah. Quoting, not actual usage. There we go. Um, yeah, the pirates complaining about not sailing near Spain as well. So I'm just like, where the fuck is Neverland? And how do they get there? <laughs> if Spain is it's like it's not a right. real place. It just made me where want to watch Muppet, Muppet Treasure Island because they were getting cabin fever. And that's all I wanted to watch. Got it too! Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Hook gives a classic mustache twirl whilst wondering. But he's also just, just in a line demonstrated that he's searching for Peter Pan for a while. So we've searched all those places and that Pan is the reason they are docked. Hook has a new plan, though. Tiger Lily. They're going to talk to the Indian chief's daughter with some persuasion, as they put it, suggesting they might boil her in oil or keyhole her, which is to tie someone to a ship and drag them underwater. I listened to that in the most recent one. I've never heard that before, and then I realised what keelhauling is, and it's horrid. That's so violent. (laughs) 
Persuasion, so guys. Persuasion. That's so violent. Uh, we're also showing how little patience and resolve for his own crew Hook has here as they shoots one for singing. Guy steps out and steps out singing, gets shot. So we're, we're seeing a very, very cold hide. It's established <laughs> that Hook is as such due to Pan, that he lost his hand in a sword fight with him, which does make you wonder how Hook was prior to losing his hand. This is what pushed him over the edge. I imagine he's always been a dick. Mm. Kill Holly isn't just dragging underneath underwater as well. It's fucking grim. Often uh, it's, it's dragging him like across the bottom of the ship. Mm. Underwater, so you tie like a loop, throw you over one board, pull you underneath, and then because the ships are covered in barnacles, it's pretty fucking grim. So in reality, this all smacks of Moby Dick. The obsession, the lost appendage, the disdain for those around him. It would be hard trust not to think that J.M. Barry wasn't lending somewhat from it, um, as Moby Dick had come out 50 years earlier also. Yeah, I was going to say, I also, when you look at the map, not to be like a complete dick to um, Hook, but he shows the picture of the map, which looks really small, and then he goes, we've looked everywhere! I'm like... <laughs> How? Like, how have you looked everywhere? To like, be fair, so their many... hideout is underground. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, when you realise, but to start with, you're like, what? Like, how have you... There's literally, like... If this is the one thing you exist to do... Like, I don't understand how you've never found him, but carry on. So what's interesting as well is that it's Hook's left hand, which is the less dominant hand, which, though symbolically dominant, uh, which means Pan cut off Hook's defensive hand in the fight, not the one which was attacking him. Again, opportunism of Pan being shown. However, this also conflicts with the play, as in the play, he loses his right hand, but Disney animators felt it would limit him too much being left with only his left hand, which adds I wonder, to the... Oh, go on. I wonder if it's to do with most people being right-handed. And which it also adds to the play the idea of Pan being much more ruthless than we think. <laughs> Smee suggests it was a prank in Pan's eyes. Don't it's worry. just a prank, bro. It's a prank. <laughs> and Hook agrees, which is interesting. Um, but it's poor form. It is poor form. It's poor form. It is poor form. He he's too sorry as a fair wound though. He saw losing his hand as a fair wound, but the insult is that he threw the hand out. He didn't mind losing the hand in the sword battle. It's the fact that he threw the hand away. Um, which we do learn of this ruthless man, and now that he has a weakness in the form of a tick-tocking croc. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. So, Pan fed his hand to a crocodile, and since the crocodile has been following and hunting Hook. What's made worse is Croc also swallowed a clock, meaning that when he's around, he ticks, and thus slowly and surely torturing Captain Hook. The crocodile, if you will, is an interesting one. Um, you may! I do enjoy that! <laughs> the crocodile. There's obvious symbolism there in the form of the ticking clock for Hook. The time passing on peers never want to grow up and Hook attempting to kill youth. And also more so in Hook's want for order and civility in what is classed as a savage land. The crocodile can represent that passion he has to enforce rule and code of the pirate and pan and make him grow up and thus engaging with Pan, he too is now being chased by something unfinished attempting to restore order. Don't let me down now. So Smee shoes away the croc because Smee being regularly awesome um, and does what he does best, calms Hook down with a smooth and close shave, which also show, shows Hook's <laughs> level of trust in Smee. He gives his first mate to give him a cutthroat shave, which you've seen a cutthroat razor is terrifying. 
Smee tries to reason with Hook that they should forget Pan and go back to sea, but they are interrupted as Pan comes flying in and the pirates take aim at the flying Pan and the children. What's interesting about Hook is that he wasn't in the original play when it was first written. He's what's called a focus-tested character. In early drafts, Pan was as close to a villain as you would get, but Hook was created for a front-of-cloth scene, which is where you put on plays between the play you're doing while scenery is being rearranged to keep people and children entertained and while scenes are set up barry was impressed by the reaction that pirates kept getting from kids so on that premise included more pirates fascinated with it all and expanded the role as a captain to be fully developed into the play Uh, barry states in the novel that hook was not his true name and to reveal who he really was would even at this date set the country ablaze. Hook is said to be Blackbeard's bosun or petty officer and the only man of whom Barbecue was afraid, which was a slang name for Long John Silver, who goes by in Treasure Island. Barry had no fear of learning from others and showing how much he was inspired by them, which is quite rare for writers. He simply wanted to explore imagination, as we've kept saying, and in the play it's implied that Hook attended Eton College Oxford, and his final words are Floriot Etona, which is Eton's motto in the novel. Oh. In the novel, Hook's last words are similarly upper class, which is bad for, in disapproval um, of the way Pan beats him. I was going to say, the other thing about I wonder if kids were obsessed with pirates in that time is because that's the time when, um, still a time when Britain was being really n- navy and navally industrious in the sense of <laughs> invading other countries and stuff. It was um, a colonial empire time, yeah, wasn't it? So obviously big ships and stuff and they probably knew people that travelled and merchants Dale. and things. Yeah. So yeah, that's probably another reason they were probably really it was interesting. How many people do love pirates as kids generally? Um, I didn't. They scared What's that, sorry? So people generally love pirates as a kid. Yeah, had a toy pirate ship. Actually, I think my brother had a toy pirate ship, but I didn't like him. Why don't you like pirates? They scared me. They were giant, scary, uncontrollable people. Like, scary. Like, they were big. They were scary. They might take me somewhere. I might get trapped somewhere. They had big beards. I couldn't see their faces. Just lots of that. That's didn't so, like it. That's adorable. That's... <laughs> didn't that's like adorable. it. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte. So as Peter is on a cloud with the darling showing off Neverland, the pirates fire upon them with cannons. Peter takes the lead, distracting the pirates, sending the kids to the island, following Tink, who guns in, unhappy with her role in saving them. Tink heads to the Lost Boys camp to wake them. She lies and tells Peter told them to shoot down the Wendy bird incoming. And as Charlotte put it, Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell literally nearly murders Wendy as the last Lost Boys attempt to kill her. They miss, yeah. though, and she's saved by Peter. I love... I love the guy with like the broken voice. Oh, Wendy Bird! <laughs> Having failed to kill Wendy, um, the, boy, the Proud Boys get dressed down by Peter Pan, uh, despite them being misled for what they did, and they are instantly remorseful, which shows just how much weight they put in Pan's leadership, telling them he brought them a mother to tell them stories. In the play, the Lost Boys were infants, said to have fallen out of prams while their nurses weren't looking, whereas Peter Pan is a permanent resident of Neverland. The Lost Boys are only temporary lodgers. Um, If they seem to grow up, Pan would kill them to prevent Neverland from overpopulation and reduce the chances of challenge to his rule. Pan himself is said to have been uh, learnt to fly as a baby and escaped his household, flown out through a window. But the Lost Boys are people 
he gathers. Again, not not creepy at all. Definitely. But Pan does something interesting. He charges Tink with high treason. Even dressed down, Tink is defiant and basically a brat about it. Punish me, Peter, is the phrase which came to mind (laughs) for expecting a slap on the wrist um, or something. (laughs) But Peter then banishes Tinkerbell, much to a surprise. Um, So she takes the hoof and flies off. If you're not going to play the game. I'm gonna go. Barry in the original play described Tinkerbell as a fairy who mended pots and kettles and an actual tinker of the fairy. Uh, oh, that's why she's called Tinkerbell. It's actually a phrase I use a lot, Tinker. I call people yeah. Tinker all the time. Uh, in the first version of the play, she's called Tippy Toe, oh. but became Tinkerbell in later dress. I like Tippy Toe. Tippy Toe. Yeah, Tippy Toe is cool. Good name. Uh, her personality, he explained in the story by the fact that fairy size prevents her from holding more than one feeling at a time. So when she's angry, she has no counterbalance in compassion. And at the end of the novel, he actually mentioned that Tinkerbell died in the year after Wendy and the brothers returned home, and Peter no longer remembers. Her. Oh, God. Yeah, the original novel's way darker. It's like a grim fairy tale. <laughs> Lordy. So there is lots of shouting about who wants to do what with the lost boys, Wendy and the brothers. Uh, but they decide the boys are going to hunt Indians and Peter and Wendy are going to see mermaids. Spoiler alert. Mermaids are dicks. Also, <laughs> we're following yeah, the leader. You wrote that in my notes. <laughs> you did. I thought we'd keep that one in. And we're off to follow the leader. The leader. The leader. And I do hope you get the song stuck in your head. It's been in my head ever since. This week. Don't do it too much, though. We'll get copyright struck. I was about to say, I don't know how it's going to be like. Elephant in the room time, guys. The Indians. And we're about to get a little, little serious. Because you know, we as we discuss it, because there are important points to make, which I feel left, you know, as a podcast, we we ask people to listen to, and we we have to delve into a little bit. Obviously, we delve into the story, but we need to understand the time, the place, and and how it happened, and, and why it's important to recognize it now. So, watching back as an adult in a society which has progressed onto a point where we would like to think that racial stereotyping within media was at least more subtle than Peter Pan. It does fall into the category of what the fuck when you blatant racism. Yeah, when you rock it back, and you also—it's strange as well. The more I think about it, that it's written by J.M. Barry, who's Scottish in the 1900s, and likely will have never met a Native American. So that's what I said to Brett. I was like, I can forgive. Pardon me if you can forgive J.M. Barry's writing of this because he potentially would have had no idea what an actual Native American would have been like. Yeah. other than what was reported in the news and even yeah. then the news wasn't very like up to date i guess yes um, so that that that's that's essentially the crux of how they end up like they do so peter pan's depiction of what is essentially native americans on the island as the indians despite the children being from england and peter ban being from wherever are based on and obviously near spain as brett obviously pointed near out spain uh, they're based on caricatures of the time. They're based on what advertising would have shown Jane Barry. They're based on what he would have seen through media, which would all have been caricatures. And then in 1953, when the film is produced, uh, a lot of content of that kind was still around. It was Asian culture, African, European. The idea was to solicit that what was mainstream should be comfortable, which was white, English, American, and all else were underdeveloped and rife for comedic takes in terms of their society so stereotyping was just a casual thing within that it's one of those moments where you sort of 
have to go and i'm very aware that we are four white people talking about this that it was one of those moments of we can understand why Mm -hmm. and we can understand where it came from and how doesn't make it right doesn't make it okay doesn't make it acceptable in any way but we understand where historically this was sat in a time period yes so Disney have tried to address this with their addition of the disclaimer to the films of this time. You know, you see it a lot in any of the films you watch from this time period of, of Disney. Um, adding a little descriptor at the start of the film to say that these depictions are not correct. Well, I was actually, so the, this is the reason I chose this mm. movie. was because this, well, this version, but also because I chose this, was because... I can read it. This program includes ne- includes negative depictions or mistreatment of people of cultures. These stereotypes were wrong men and they're wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Disney is committed to creating stories with inspirational aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe. To learn more, blah, 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 blah. That is a very well-constructed statement and has it said it is. better than we probably can. Yeah. It's a very well-constructed statement. And what I do want to kind of address as well is like if anyone sees these things and they see the that title screen for the Disney film and they they themselves are upset that Disney are not are including it and that kind of thing, it's I kind of want people to think of how those depictions hurt Native American culture. You just need to consider what's actually being shown to you within the film. You know, if you if you're watching Peter Pan and you think, oh, well, it's not that bad. This is what you need to think of. What they're depicted as is being slow, described as unintelligent, savage. They speak in exaggerated, stunted language using phrases like pale face. Red man is used a lot in the film. There's a whole song dedicated to it, which was a popular racial slur at the time. And they smoke, they drink, and they're generally the punchline for as many quips of the other characters, not to mention the physical depictions of how these people are portrayed. And then if you think in 1953, this is all you're shown of that culture. That's the only impression you can get to them because you're in England. You're not going to encounter a casual Native American in the street. You can see how that escalates to becoming something damaging, especially as in uh, 1953 in America, the government was slowly degrading the significance of them. It's what's called the Indian Termination Policy, which ended the government's recognition of over 100 tribes in the US and an attempt to force the removal of Native culture and integrate them into 1950s America. This is what they were facing at the time that this film was released. Ben Nighthouse gave gave a poignant line at an opening address in 2007 regarding this. He says, if you can't change them, absorb them until they simply disappear in the mainstream culture. In Washington's infinite wisdom, it was decided that tribes should no longer be tribes, never mind that they had been tribes for thousands of years. So it's easy for us to say this is the style at the time as for white people sitting behind microphones and there it's easy for other people to say that there's nothing wrong with enjoying nostalgia of a piece like Peter Pan as it does represent a huge part of childhoods as much as Disney does because it it comes in and takes your childhood and I'm sure there'll be many listeners who with that say oh you know it was all in fun but remember it was only fun for some you know if you are thinking that I hope if any of our listeners go oh but it was fun they can feck off um interesting side note um disney only really added some of these uh, they so if i was trying to uh, trying to expand the amount of films they add this to and the most recent ones they've added to are lady and the tramp the aristocats yeah dumbo jungle book and i don't know why this isn't the first on the list song of the south oh it's because for a while (laughs) they just tried to ban song of the south they didn't want like nobody wanted it out (laughs) 
yeah it's 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 one of these things it's always going to be a touchy subject but i do feel like it's important to make these points and it's important for us to discuss and be a little uncomfortable discussing it because that's what it, it's about. it's like that disney statement says it's important to it was never right it was it was always wrong it will still be wrong but it's important to acknowledge it so we can learn from that and that line is only fun for some actually does lead into the narrative structure of Peter Pan, which I also found interesting. So the contradiction of the Lost Boys versus the Pirates and how they capture Indians is a misnomer, as to them it's all in fun. Uh, No one gets hurt in their games, no one takes heed. It's in reality just something they do. Two groups have been doing it for years, which in a way shows why Hook is so annoyed that he lost his hand in the battle. It's like Pan escalated what was meant to be fun into committing actual violence. You know, you can kill your own shipmates, but as soon as somebody else does it, it becomes a problem. Of course, you know, classic. Which I actually recently, I haven't actually got it anywhere in my notes, but I'm going to take it. So I rewatched Hook recently. Cool, yep. And if you if you watch Peter Pan and then you watch Hook, watching them back to back makes Hook seem like an absolute drug trip because there's so many things within it where you're sat looking and going, right, this would all make sense if he was still a teenager, but he's like a 40-year-old adult. Oh, yeah. And you're kind of like watching it like, all right, so he goes back to this island. Fair enough. It, there's all this stuff about, you know, fighting and this. Like, okay. Then he starts living with these kids. All right. That's weird. Oh, also, he, he decides to go to battle to kill Hook, but he has an army of children. So he's okay with putting an army of children at risk. Also, in Hook, <laughs> one of the children gets stabbed in the chest and yeah. dies. It's, there's a whole like whole thing. So he's just like, what is going on with this? It's just, and then he goes back to his regular life. <laughs> but it's i suppose it's that trope isn't it of the peter pan trope which is it's about men who refuse to grow up men who refuse to who, yeah, refu- who refuse to grow up wasn't hook more about the fact he'd lost he'd gone completely opposite way he like turned yeah, into a pirate lost, he'd lost that ability to understand children and to understand but then but at the same time, he ignores he ignores so much of what you would know as an adult yeah to to play within the game <laughs> like, to keep, mm. to play within the narrative so much of what is just like he's a four-year-old accountant is just glossed over so it can be like, yeah, oh, it's going I, back to Neverland. I, I like the film, but I really struggle now as an adult to see Robin Williams dressed as a, the child's Peter Pan as well. Mm. Like the tights and the kind of green, you know, leafy camouflage vibe. And not be like, you just look and are acting very fucking weird. Like, it I know this is what weird, the film has yeah. been leading to, is that you've realised you're Peter Pan, but you're still in the body of a 40-year-old man. And then and you're willing the to fact that he just goes back to his regular his life. Boy. Like, just, just yeah. like I just watched a teenager get stabbed in the chest. But I'm all right with that. You know, I caused that. But I'm cool well, the children saw that happen, and they watched Hook getting eaten and digested by a giant crocodile, and they are mentally clearly fine at the end of the film. But it's okay, also, it's their joint delusion. He's also American, so it's like he went and he was like, oh, cool, so I'm just going to teach these guys how to use guns. So, like... Because he just like he arms the lost boys with what essentially are firearms. <laughs> like, you just escalated the pirate boy war. <laughs> like, such you know a what though? The like the use of the swords and the fighting like that. When you said about Hook being like an Etonian boy, hmm. and like you, when you think of like posh boy fighting, yep. you think posh of fencing, boy. don't you? Posh boy fighting. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You think of swords. You think of fencing, and you think of that. And it is so very typical of that. It's like, I will fight you with my sword. Possibly that was my digression. 
also that's probably though if you think about it that's probably why on the undertones hooks mad that he threw away his hand because i suppose in the whole like honor thing of fighting is you win and then you like you stop well yeah you win but you also accept that win and like you mm. whatever prize you get you then go oh this is my prize essentially mm. what Peter Pan's going, oh, this is my prize, and fuck that. Here you go. Like, and just this means nothing into, to me. Like, yeah. Like, like, eating it into a crocodile. Like, yeah. yeah. So, The Lost Boys, that was my digression about Hook, by the way. I, I, I couldn't fit it into the script, but I was just like, I need to break how weird this is as a film now. <laughs> it's a great film. But yeah. So, The Lost Boys are surrounded by Indians, despite John's genius planning on their way to find meet the yes genius planning genius yeah, i'll planning. go with genius planning we, yeah, we will surround them so john being the representation of his own father uh, we see quickly how easily order and decorum fall when faced with a little bit of chaos john tries to remain dignified though in his in his little top hat as they're tied oh. up and the lost boys try to encourage him because he feels bad that they all got caught because of his plan the game they have played this time though won't see the bo- lost boys freed by the Indians. It turns out Tiger Lily, the chief's daughter, has been kidnapped, as mentioned at the very beginning of the film. And the chief blames them and tells them if she's not returned by sunset, he will burn them at the stake. Now, we all know Peter Pan is a bit of a dick. But just how much of a dick? Let's find out. Mermaids will be dicks too. A lot of dicks in this film. (laughs) Wendy and Peter watch them bathing. Creepy. But on seeing Peter, the mermaids fawn over him. Ignoring Wendy as Peter starts his tales up to tell of his life. The mermaids dislike Here Wendy. Here we go and... again, female rivalry. And they automatically attempt to drown Wendy. Something Peter We're finds. Only trying to drown her! <laughs> Something Peter finds hilarious. <laughs> During this time, they encounter Hook and Smee, who have kidnapped Tiger Lily, rowing across the sea. Um, mermaids Scapa and Peter Pan decides to intervene. Not happy that Hook is kidnapping a woman who he obviously has not got in his harem yet. Peter Pan saves her using some auditory tricks as Hook attempts to interrogate Tiger Lily, who remains resolute. Hook makes mention that there is no path through water to the happy hunting ground, suggesting if she drowns, her soul won't pass on to the afterlife. But Lily ignores him, willing to die to protect Pan. Pan, throwing his voice, confuses me. There's a solid demonstration here of how superstitious pirates are as well, to be seen in investigating the voices with knowledge of many afterlifes. But Wendy saves Peter as he's just about to get lynched by Hook, leading to Peter toying with Hook and getting him chased again by a crocodile and saving Waterloo. Smee is useless in this situation, actually blind firing his own pistol just at the group, <laughs> calling out and informing Pan where Hook is, but Pan fights Hook with a dagger showing just how easy it might actually be to defeat Hook without his hand he uses for sword. Pan manages to free Tiger Lily and in doing so, Tiger Lily adds to his harem of women. What is this guy? Kazuto Kirigawa, which is a nice sort out online reference. Oh, that's the worst anime ever, so I'm judging you intensely now. I've only seen one season, but I automatically knew that it was going to be bad. <laughs> Jen just looks very confused. You haven't this seen it, don't bother. This is, well, I don't think it was ever going to appear on my recommended. No. It's the sort of thing that just goes straight over my head. So Wendy tries to be the voice of reason here and tells Peter not to fight, to not to feed Hook to the crocodile as they're fighting. But he ignores her. Sensible. Throughout the entire thing, despite her consistently putting him back on track and saving his life in this situation. Another film where they don't listen to a sensible woman. Peter then, of course, flies off, (laughs) leading Wendy to chase. 
Um, and to this, it gives me a couple of thoughts. Throughout this, we've seen Pan chase cars. You know, he, he has singular thoughts. He can fly. And he's reactionary. If anything, the only person similar to him so far we've met is Tinkerbell, which makes me think that he's not in any way human or even close. He's just a big pixie, maybe one that lived a little too long. There's a little, there's a discussion about how Peter Pan is potentially a fairy, isn't there? Like, mm. and how he's not real. There's, there's a bit of like people thinking that. I suppose so. It's very, um, it's a very, very amplified childlike behavior. That ability to be all consumed, like when you look at toddlers and the tantrums they have, like they are so all consumed by that emotion at that point, like mm-hmm. complete anger or complete sadness or complete joy. But there's just no room for like other emotions at that point. It isn't until you start developing like, you know, the rational brain at like five, six, seven, eight, where you start to be able to do that. Whereas this is almost like he is the amplification of that singular emotion that takes precedent in that moment because that is all that you feel. Can I just also say very quickly that Peter Pan banished Tinkerbell for trying to throw, for trying to k- kill Wendy, right? The mermaids are like, ha ha, only trying to drown her! <laughs> and he's just like, lol. <laughs> I don't understand Cause how... Because Tink- Tinkerbell went against Peter's orders. <gasps> how dare she? Whereas mermaids were just yeah, having fun. Well, mermaids don't belong to Peter. You don't question Pan. That's what the rule is. You don't question Pan. But then the mermaids don't really belong to Peter, do they? No. So he's, he, he just sees them like the pirates. They're agents of chaos, the same as he is. So Pan originally appeared, as we mentioned, in an adult novel, not pornography, um, called The Little White Bird by Barry. And he was a seven-year-old baby, and he was taken from his nursery by birds and fairies and taught to fly. Of course, he has the name Pan as well, which lends to the Greek god of the wild and sheep herding, sheep herding flocks, and companion of nymphs, which explains his relationship with the mermaids. Even in his hip costume, he lends to this ideal. Uh, one creepy detail I did find, though, was the novel mentions that he still have his baby teeth, despite, despite his 12 to 13-year-old appearance. So, Peter Pan has now become a fucking horror film. Thanks. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. Does human, like, I guess, like, what? Young mannish face with tiny baby teeth. Just tiny little, baby tiny teeth. little nubs sticking out the gum. But that does explain as well. Even if he was human and he was taken by birds and fairies and taught that's how you live life, that's the personality you would have. You would have a personality which chases a single thought because that's what fairies do. He must have good dental hygiene. He's still got his baby teeth. Well, they eat they imaginary food if we're going to go through what Hook did. So they never really get anything in them. Just morning breath. Just 13 year old morning breath. Whatever that sounds like. <laughs> So a lamenting Hook is cold and tired. A fool has been made of him. Smee is nursing him back to health, where he tries again to convince Hook to go back to sea. But he reveals Pan has punished Tinkerbell, and this gets Hook's cogs turning once again. He's going to exploit Tink's jealousy. A jealous female can be tricked into anything, he says. Thus, he glams up and sends Smee to get her. This is where it starts. About to get feisty. Just to go back to Hook as well, to mention that the the relationship between Hook and Smee is an obvious fascination of just how they communicate and how they live together and everything like that. And I know, like, I know it's, I don't know if it's like fairly common knowledge that when asked about it and asked about their portrayals in the film Hook, that they basically said, yeah, we played them as a gay couple. I mean, we imagined them as a pair of queens. Because they, they even said they were, they were rehearsing the parts and rehearsing the play. 
they just turn to each other midway and they're like these guys are a pair of queens right like they're they're completely over the top dramatic they could be drag queens but pirates mm. so let's play it like that so that's why the film comes off the way it does but Smee does clearly love Hook Pan returns Tiger Lily to the chief and seems Wendy actually caught up which I find impressive considering she was just left in a large body of water she, she did fly I assume but <laughs> she was just left in a large body I like that she flaps her wings when she tries like she flaps her arms like as if they're wings when she tries to get back mm-hmm. Um, the chief is pleased and makes Pan an honorary Indian chief, labelling him the little flying eagle, which leads us to the most racist moment in the film. What makes the red man red? And what there's does? a whole song dedicated to them. Yeah. John remarking, this should be most enlightening when about to listen to said song, is the icing on the cake, but I won't go into it as we discussed earlier. We'll just say that Wendy gets tret like shit in this moment. <laughs> Forced to work whilst the boys play and dance. Pan watching Tiger Lily dance, which then causes jealousy in Wendy. And finally, Fucking Wendy shocker. stands up for herself. Yes, saying, Squaw, go home. Now, before you try using squaw in everyday conversation, squaw is also an ethnic and slur and a sexual slur yeah. used for Native American Inuits and Matisse people. So just doubling up on the racism during the racist scene. Oh. Um, but Smee returns with a captured Tinkerbell. Because Smee gets the job done. Sometimes. Not all the time. Like there was a bit at the start of the film where he shaved a, like a seagull's butt, but most of the time he gets the job done. I forgot about that. I mean, you never know, he could have done that seagull an absolute favour. He does not look pleased about it, but he shaves it close. <laughs> <laughs> Hook gets Tinkerbell to show them where Peter is, play- Peter is playing on her jealousy and sadness and romancing her, telling her he plans to leave the island admitting defeat so she can tell Pan. And that he sympathises about Wendy. Oddly, this is the only second time we hang out with Tink, yet her presence through the film is really strong. Second interact- interaction with her. Way more presence than Julia Roberts playing Tinkerbell. So that Go was ahead. a weird a weird casting, I feel. I didn't like it, but then I was also very surprised when it was Gwyneth Paltrow plays, like, young Wendy. Yeah, that is like, yeah, it is, Brett. You can look confused. I, it shocks you every time you see it. You're like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a thing. <laughs> that's just the whole thing. I also read that uh, Julia Roberts was awful to work with during that shoot. Really? Mainly because her entire shots are all green, green screen. Oh. So there's no one else there, and she suffered the same as um, happened on Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Ian McKellen. With Ian McKellen, who got fed up with shooting green screen because that's not what acting is. There's no communication. No. So they plan on capturing Wendy and to take her with, is what they tell Tinkerbell. And this is enough encouragement Tinkerbell needs to give them the hideout location because she fucking hates Wendy. Mm. So the hideout location is at a place called Hangman's Tree. Who knows what happens there? Um, Hook then imprisons Tink, and they head off to capture Wendy and kill Pan instantly. Let me just talk about how this is at this point with the whole Red Man Red song and the squall getting firewood and all that stuff. That I realised how anti-woman this film is, because as Jen said, the women keep getting paid off against each other. There's a huge amount of jealousy. Um, yeah, literally, like, Hook manipulates Tinkerbell by going, well, she must be jealous because she's a woman. I mean, not that she isn't, because we've seen that she is. And, yeah, just how Wendy in general has just been treated like shit this whole time. And then they're like, oh, let's do the damsel in distress thing, as per usual. Yeah, just a bit shit. It is a bit shit, yeah. For women, this is a shit film. I don't feel like this film helps anyone in the end. <laughs> like, no. Women get a very, very rough time. Native Americans get a very rough time. Just no one comes off well at the end of Peter Pan. No. Like, no, they no. do not. So the boys return to base to find Wendy waiting up for them. Wendy is non-impressed 
by what has been happening. And Peter can't understand why. Everyone else thinks I'm great, he says. She tries not to she tries to put John and Michael to bed, but she tries to be practical, embodying her father, completing the cycles, to see how much how much a nuisance pure chaos can be. And as she tries to reason with her brothers, here we see Michael has already begun to forget their past, showing the effect Neverland has on boys who are kept there. This triggers the other lost boys to remember moments of their own lives, and she tells them of real mothers and sings to them a song which makes the boys tired. The pirates surround the hideout and are touched too. Hook, however, remains resolute during this moment, consumed by his practicality and his hunt for Pan. The boys all gather around Wendy. Following her lead, it seems Pan has been usurped. And he himself is annoyed by it. His respect for a mother, long gone. He thinks of them as falling into a trap. Go on, go back and grow up. But I'm warning you, once you've grown up, you can never come back. The fear of adulthood's instilled. It's him or it's your mother. But mother wins out. Pan's unconvinced them, thinking, they'll be back. And they leave. And are instantly captured by Hook and his crew. And in their place, Hook leaves a bomb in the hideout for a now sleeping Peter. Smee even points out that it wouldn't it be more humane to slit his throat. But Hook refutes this because he has been cunning. And he promised Tinkerbell that he would not lay a finger or a hook on Peter Pan. And so what else could he do? His hands are tied and a gift-wrapped explosion will have to do. The man is a man of his word, after all. That's some lawyer-level bullshit. That's some lawyer-level yeah, bullshit. Yeah, he's a child killer. Hook, on board with the prisoners, instead of killing them, offers them a chance to join him. This is a reflection of what Pan offered you. Either follow orders, or you can't come with. With Pan, that's freedom, or live in a world under him. For the fully practical code of pirate, written its contract, or its death. Free tattoos, though. Yeah, okay. I forgot. that. Like, that, uh, that line hits different when you're older. You're like, free tattoos? <laughs> Ooh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, free tattoo? Oh, okay. I'm interested now. Tattoos or time. Mm. Save a few hundred quid on a tattoo. Yeah. You yeah. could probably, you're probably likely to get a bloodborne virus from, but you know, it's not important. So the, the lost boys rush to join, but Wendy once again intervenes. She has the balance. She's a mix of love and practicality. And in these scenes, we see it most. Hook and Pan are extremes in themselves. Pan has been out unbound and raised wild and free. Hook, a victim of trauma and the code is the rigid complexity which he lives under essentially they are wendy's parents and whilst he has has romances pan she knows now the jealousy the death the danger and the world which she returns of what waits for her what could be as an adult and why you can't live in fantasy wendy however is resolute completely in not signing saying peter pan will save us hook of course knows he left pan the bomb revealing his plan which is a mistake that the parcel addressed from Wendy, which is a nice touch, leaving it addressed from Wendy, tells Pan not to open it until six o'clock. And he has given Pan his own death clock, having been followed by his own for so long. And he has 13 seconds, which is a nice unlucky number to count down. Tickerbell, however, hears all of this and breaks her case, escapes. She tries to reason with Pan whilst getting to the, the hideout, tries to save him. But in the process, the bomb goes off and she's almost killed in the process. Six six o'clock, the explosion's heard across the land, and Hook takes a moment to mourn his worthy opponent. In the rubble, then, Pan emerges in the damaged hideout and finds Tinkerbell, her light almost having gone out. Tinkerbell tells him he has to go. He has to go save Wendy and the boys, but Pan says no and shows the only bit of compassion he has in the entire film. So, Don't you understand, Tink? You mean more to me than anything in this whole world, he says. And the hideout collapses. Hook, meanwhile is attempting again. You either take the pen or the plank. 
but the children say no. Hook, ever a cold man, does nothing to try and coerce after that and accepts the answer quickly, offering Wendy the plank. If this were an adult film, he'd about to be committing one of the most cardinal chewing the plot sins for his own commandments. He'd be giving Pan, John, and Michael no reason not to kill Hook. Because yeah. They're about to remove the one person they all agree is a good person. And I do think at some point we should probably write that down in like a rule book of yeah, what sure. not to do in fiction. <laughs> you, if you got an enemy, don't, don't kill that one. Wendy walks the plant. And with a single tear, steps off. There's no splash. <laughs> also, I'm just going to say something quickly. Hook acts like three children arriving in Neverland isn't like an issue. Now, I obviously know that obviously got lost boys and stuff. But not at any point is he like, who the fuck are these kids? I just feel like, especially as it's always all boys, and then this little girl turns up and he's like, if I was him, I'd be like, what the fuck going on? I don't know, I just think it's a bit weird. In a film where we've got, like, flying people, I feel like that's maybe the least weird point. (laughs) Yeah, okay, fine, okay, fine. I've been beaten, it's okay, I understand. As Brett said, there is no splash. Not a blooming ripple. Causing the superstitious pirates to get shook. The ship's bewitched. No splash, Captain. Hook, affronted by this nonsense, yeets a crew member into the sea. I'll give you a splash. <laughs> I was like, no splash? I'll give you a splash. Chuck's over. There's of course no splash, as Pan has, in, has arrived, survived with Tink, and has snuck in and grabbed Wendy, and thus the final battle is about to begin. Sneaky bastard. The pair do battle across the ship and around it, and in the process of trying to run Pan through, Hook gets his hook caught in the mast of the ship. The pirates chase the children, fleeing as Hook frees himself, and we see Croc once again excitedly waiting for him. Smee, meanwhile, does what Smee does best. Loads a boat with supplies. He's doing what he wants to do, and saving himself from the anarchy. Pan and Hook continues his sword fight as Pan knocks Hook out with a cannon and then saves the kids being chased. Smee's boat is overloaded with the falling pirates as he gets into this full-on ruckus. But Hook gets Pan in one location who has been busy bounding about, calling him a coward. The chaos and the code are about to confront one another. They stand on the sails, mast, and finally stand off man to man. No flying. No flying, Pan. Still proves he's nimble. Meanwhile, Croc waits for his meal. In a subtle symbolic moment, Pan manages to wrap Hook in the skull and crossbones flag of the pirate. Holding him at saw points, the inevitable foreshadowing. Hook begs for his life, then calling himself a codfish. Lulling Pan into a moment of neglect, Pan celebrates and frees Hook, but once freed, Hook takes a final swing at Pan, which is bad form on my account, I believe. Pan then flies. Yeah, Pan that's, then flies. That's, that's also bad form. He's also cheating. You broke the code, and instantly, the code's off then. <laughs> I'm going to fly. And Hook falls from the mast into the waiting jaws of the croc and chases off into the sunset. So you get the, it's, the bit, it's the bit where he's like trapped in the mouth. <laughs> and just feed on either, like, either side. Oh, yeah. Or ricochet off. Automatically <laughs> calls for Smee. <laughs> Pan then declares himself captain and tells the crew to cast the ship off to London to return them all home, flying the ship into the sky with the help of Tinkerbell, who happens to have enough dust to make a ship fly, apparently. Yeah. The Darlings return home yeah. from their evening, letting Nana back into the house, and a remark that Mr. Darling has changed his mind. Wendy to allow her to be a child for a little longer. Looking in the children, they find Wendy is out of bed, sleeping by the window. Bleary-eyed, she begins a classic Wendy ramble, telling how they are back, but the Lost Boys returned as they weren't quite ready to grow up. Wendy reveals, though, that she is indeed 
now ready to grow up. That said, she and her father are once again on different sides of the coin. <laughs> Running to her mother, she they tell to tell her tale. Listening to it all, though, Mr. Darling has had enough of what's being described. Sounds like a morphine dream. But on gazing out the window, Wendy, her mother, and father all see a cloud shaped like a flying ship flying through the sky. And her father remarks, you know, I have the strangest feeling. I've seen that ship before, a long time ago, when I was very young, bringing them all together and the story to a close. I feel like in other versions they've done more to redeem the father Mm. yes because they you they seem to do more because it would make sense that the children get kidnapped and the parents like what the fuck Mm. um so I feel like in the later versions they give him more of a parental vibe of like my children are missing and wakes up to the fact that that's what's important is the children not all the rules and the stuff that's been like bogging them down you know what i mean it rounds out quite nicely i think it's it's one of those things as well like every pan film or book you read and slightly different they're all yeah kind of like hooked slightly together Uh, but they all end up with the family kind of kind of on the same page you know all kind of figuring out it's interesting because in the 2003 version Mm -hmm. all of the boys the lost boys kind of turn up and get adopted by the family and then peter is left to go back alone he doesn't stay because he almost does he almost stays to grow up and then he goes back again in the end peter pan is a story intentionally open to interpretation it's laden with hidden symbolism and notes for you to catch but you won't catch them all and even in the disney variant this isn't hidden Walt disney was dissatisfied in the end with the film as he felt peter pan was not a likable character was Agreed with Kate Darby. And vindictive. But people praised the film and how it had depicted that. Ironically, Walt had played Pan in a play as a child yeah. and may have felt somewhat connected to him, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but it's not very Disney is it, to have a main character who's not redeemable or is on the fence of morality. Personally, it is now. It is now, mm. but not in 1953. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I like the theory of this being Wendy's dream. Um, a shared delusion sparked by a story telling, but meant to inspire, whether that be through morphine or through sleep, that conflict she found in needing to grow up in Victorian England, mirroring Barry's own want for the world to see what he saw, but knowing in the end he'd have to commit at least to some aspects of adulthood in order to be understood. But whatever the theory, that's the end of my notes on this story. Yeah. It's, mm. it's, it's an interesting one, I think, because I was saying to Brett about how... It's one of those stories a bit like Alice in Wonderland that's been adapted so many times, but you always have the same things to come back to. Mm. Like, yeah, it always it's really interesting that some stories that are like public domain, if you think about it, like Macbeth has changed so many times or so many yeah. different versions that vary so wildly. Whereas I feel like almost all the pan and like Alice in Wonderland, for example, iterations seem to go along the they, same they path. Keep, I- yeah, because they kind of keep the same timeline in terms of the story. They keep the majority of the characters' like names the same and everything like that. And they also keep the relationships kind of the same yeah. as well. It's almost really the only things they really ever change are the, are the ambiguous parts, like the end. And like yeah. the, the bits that, that are always said to be a bit like vague. But it's Um, always like a magical place. You go from London, you go to a magical, you go to Neverland. Yeah, it's always sort of the same. Like you said, you always have the same characters to an extent. Yeah. 
they don't so, yeah. change it from like a ship or anything like that you know it's still the pirate ship it's still the island but then mm. i'm not sure if that's because it's their children's stories mm. they don't change as wildly as other ones it's, it's i don't know it's, it's a strange one i mean it's a story arc it's one which has been mirrored time and again like in other formats i mean if yeah. you if, if you've ever seen um is it polar express this is the polar express oh yeah you know that's you know someone appears in the night takes a child away along with other children to a fantastical land I mean, obviously in yep. that case is creepy it's it's creepy um but at the same time it's it's santa and people love it um because that's it if you're looking from it from the perspective of a child yeah like a children's film for children it's just about imagination and going off to a fantastical land and having adventures and then coming back again safely so all, all about the interpretation of face value and how you take things as a child and yeah as, as an adult everybody watches it and goes okay well there's a few points in here which make me uncomfortable but that's because we've had life we've had experiences mm. we know situations where a line about keeping a window open to let someone in becomes something less than fantastical more threatening <laughs> yeah. oh i sent you guys the link for the amazon um for lost girls and if you scroll through the photos the pictures you will see some of the depictions in there Oh I, just I so you that. can see what's going on i will have a look oh okay yeah i'm not gonna be buying that <laughs> i like how nope. the front of, the front of it just looks like casual classic front cover. yeah and then yeah. you open it up and you're like oh it's just kama sutra <laughs> but yeah but that. dressed up as um that looks like um peter and michael together there yeah yeah excellent there's some, yeah, there's some interesting depictions within the Lost Girl. Uh, if you are under the age of 18, shall we say, don't be picking yeah. up this book. I wouldn't From Alan it. Moore. Who's Alan Moore? Uh, so he's, he's a graphic novel creator who's responsible for V for Vendetta, Watchmen, From Hell. Oh. So it's, yeah, he just had a moment. it's described as an erotic masterpiece by Alan Moore. Yeah, it's that like, explains a lot actually about what I'm seeing. <laughs> yeah, okay. If you if you get it, it's intense to look at. It's just a lot of. Oh god! I mean, it's seventy one dollars though. No, hang it's on. Like Let me see if I can find the on the UK one. Get it used for fifty one dollars. Yeah, twenty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just see if the library's got a copy. Uh, yeah, twenty five pounds. <laughs> oh god! Can you buy it in Kindle? Jesus, you can buy it in Kindle. Don't buy it in Kindle, kids. Don't just don't buy it, kids. Don't buy it. Not <laughs> <With> me. <laughs> don't buy it. Read read Alan Moore's other work. Do not buy yeah. it. <laughs> v for Vendetta fully fully recommends. Yeah. From Top Hell, great 12. story. Actually, All about Jack the Ripper. We were... <laughs> but on that, about that. But on that, that yeah, little, on that little little nugget of knowledge which we've dislodged from Jen's mind to <laughs> to bring us back, I believe we've thoroughly chewed the plot the of plot. Peter Pan, guys. Oh yeah. yeah! Next month we have the fabulous Jen Darby. Yay! What are you bringing us next month, Jen? I am bringing you guys the reimagined classic Emma in the form of Clueless, the '90s powerhouse that it is. Can I just two things? Um, for, I don't know if this is like how you know just life works, but they're selling clueless pajamas in Primark at the minute, which I thought was really weird. After oh. I'd literally just watched watched it, and they are and Brett had never seen it before, and I made him watch it the other week, and he really liked it. Sorry, right, yeah. So, see how that goes. Then. It's 
that's it. It's one of those that I think people think is like a real like teen, like 90s teen terrible thing. It's based on Emma anyway. And uh, what she called, she did it, Amy. But, you know, it was a, it's a very female driven piece. Yeah. And it's not what you think it's going to be in terms of teen movies. And that's kind of what she was playing against as well. It's cool. We'll get into all of that yeah. next month as we discuss it and we break it down. I got my copy of Emma. I'm going to try and, try and read some of it. By the way, Emma is so unlikable as in the character Emma. <laughs> all right. <laughs> like, well, this is the thing is in the book, I Emma is my least favorite of the Austin. I love Austin's, but Emma drives me up the fucking wall. She's oh, awful. Which is why I like Cluedus. We'll watch Cluedus. But we will get to that. If you want to do some pre-reading or watching, that's what we will be discussing. Mm-hmm. But from me, myself, Brett Knight, Charlotte Greenwood, and Jen Darby, we will talk to you guys later. Bye! Bye! Bye.